Hi, church family. I'm Peter Young. I'm in one of the men's prayer groups that are currently meeting, and so are the other guys on the screen. We meet every weekday from 6.30 to 7 a.m. There are multiple groups that meet throughout the week, every weekday morning at different times. We start our day by opening God's word and then reading a verse or two before praying about the verse and how it applies to us or the world around us. You don't have to prepare anything. You don't have to be some kind of person who prays eloquently. You don't have to know a lot about the Bible. You just have to show up and participate. And if and even if you need to miss some of the meetings, that is okay. We just want to get in the habit of reading and praying over God's word on a regular basis. For me, it is e for me it is easy to break out of that habit. But knowing that other guys are counting on me to join them has been wonderful. Yeah, so why don't you introduce yourself? <laughs> okay. Hello, church family. My name is Tony Jurgens. Um, when I uh, Peter first invited me to uh, join his prayer group, I had some reservations as I uh, tend to be a little private uh, when it comes to prayer. Um, with uh, with that, I ended up joining, and uh, it's been very enlightening. Uh, I had the opportunity to learn more about the Bible and learn more about my brothers in Christ here that uh, are in my prayer group. It's been very heartwarming and very opening for me to establish those relationships and hold closer to Christ. Hey, church family. My name's Steve Young. Uh, it's 6.40 a.m. And uh, we do this every weekday morning. Um, we come as we are. Uh, don't even comb my hair. Don't even brush my teeth. So, But you can't tell that. Uh, I just enjoy this time with my, my brothers. Peter Young invited me uh, over a year ago. And um, it's a, a great way to start off the day uh, in God's word and praying with your with your brothers. And I can tell you before this, uh, I, the only time I prayed with my brothers was maybe once a week, once every two weeks. Now doing it daily, it's, it's, it's so enriching and just starts off the day right. If you'd like to give one of the groups a try, email men at wcpc.church or stop by the men's table after the service. And now the reading of God's word. This is Acts 22, verses 12 to 22. A man named Ananias came to see me. He was a devout observer of the law and highly respected by all the Jews living there. He stood beside me and said, Brother Saul, receive your sight. And at that very moment, I was able to see him. Then he said, the God of our ancestors has chosen you to know his will and to see the righteous one and to hear words from his mouth. You will be his witness to all people of what you have seen and heard. And now, what are you waiting for? Get up, be baptized, and wash your sins away, calling on his name. When I returned to Jerusalem and was praying at the temple, I fell into a trance and saw the Lord speaking to me. Quick, he said, leave Jerusalem immediately, because the people here will not accept your testimony about me. Lord, I replied, these people know that I went from one synagogue to another to imprison and beat those who believe in you. And when the blood of your martyr Stephen was shed, I stood there giving my approval and guarding the clothes of those who were killing him. Then the Lord said to me, go, I will send you far away to the Gentiles. The crowd listened to Paul until he said this. Then they raised their voices and shouted, rid the earth of him. He is not fit to live. 
the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. There are often those moments where you say, the word of the Lord? Rid the earth of him? Get rid of him? What's going on there? Well, uh, firstly, if I haven't met you, I'm Bart Garrett. We're delighted to have you with us. I joined Tommy in saying welcome. Um, Secondly, this is a really weird and difficult passage of Scripture. And if we were not preaching through the prayers in the book of Acts, I probably would not preach this passage. I'm just confessing that to you. But we're going through every prayer in the book of Acts, and we're um, cultivating what I hope is not just a prayer list Uh, but a prayer life. And uh, we wanted our men's prayer groups to uh, share a little bit about what they've been doing over these months and even over a year now. And uh, we didn't want to squelch that as pastors because when we manufacture things, they don't always work. But these men, six or seven groups have been meeting, and you heard it right, every weekday together, which is amazing. And may your tribe increase. And as we sort of uh, round the bend and finish up on this series on prayer, uh, I think we have one or two of these left. I want to just uh, speak a tension that I'm experiencing as I want to pastor you well. Uh, And here's the tension. On the one hand, I want you to know that prayer is open and accessible and available to you at any moment, in any circumstance, through any situation. Anyone can do it. Uh, I love Anne Lamott's book entitled Help, Thanks, and wow. Those are three prayers of Scripture. Help, thanks, and wow. But on the other hand, I also want to point out that it takes diligent decisions to make time for prayer. We make time for for podcasts and Netflix and social media. We make time to take showers and to eat and to brush our teeth. And what Brian Kay said last week in his sermon is that he kind of hopes as Christians we just sort of make prayer our thing. And to become uh, virtuosos in prayer, if you will, it really takes dedication and practice, much like we might give to exercise or to music. Uh, Soren Kierkegaard, and I like to throw in a Kierkegaard quote every now and again because I know how much Matt Darty, our student minister, loves Soren Kierkegaard. Uh, but he's a Danish philosopher. I've also wanted to start a pastry shop called the Kierkegaard, but that's another story. Serve Danishes there or whatnot. But this is what he says in his journal. The result of busyness is that an individual is very seldom permitted to form a heart. In the Hebrew mind, the heart was the deep seat of who we are. And I have pastries on my mind this morning, so I'm going to tell you I love donuts, but what I don't like about donuts is there is a hole in the center of them. And that could be the best part, but there is often a hole in the center of our life that I think prayer might actually fill. Now, our church is growing, I think. Look around. And I have this dream that we would be known uh, not for great music, even though I think our music is great, uh, not for smart preaching, I'll let you be the judge of that, not for uh, good vibes, I think our church has good vibes, but I pray that we would be known for being a people who love the Lord our God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and who love our neighbors, our friends, our family, our co-workers, just as we would love ourselves. And what actually sutures those things together? That's right, prayer. Talking and listening to God in an ever-deepening relationship and talking and listening to God about how to move into ever-sacrificing relationships with our friends and our family and our neighbors and our co-workers. So today, we're going to spend a few minutes looking at prayers of intervention. And it's confusing.
passage. I confess I'm still not wholly pleased with how this sermon has come together. So uh, if it feels a little bit to me like I'm finishing a painting as an adult and it shows up as like first grader refrigerator art. So here's a word of encouragement to you. If you're consternated and confused by this, it's only 20 minutes. So it's only 20 minutes of your life wasted, right? Okay. But uh, two pictures may help us. So I want you to think of these two pictures. Uh, One of them is an actual intervention. And as a pastor, I've been a part of, of three or four of these things over the years. It's where uh, loved ones gather together because another loved one is beset by uh, damaging themselves or some sort of addiction. And it's a moment where those loved ones say, you need to alter your behavior. You need to change your course of action. So I, w- I want you to hold that in your mind's eye. And then the other picture I want you to hold in your mind's eye is a job interview. Uh, You're sitting in a job interview, and there's this daunting, exhilarating opportunity for you. So these are these two pictures as we get into this passage. And before I get to the the prayer itself, I want to back up and retell the story a little bit. And when I was looking at the text this week, I moved all the way back three chapters to Acts chapter 20, verse 1. And I thought, you know, the men's prayer group, as uh, august a community as you are, I wasn't sure you could handle reading three chapters of Scripture to us this morning. So didn't want to make you do that. But I want to back up and retell the story just a little bit. And as I do... I want you to think about Kevin Durant, the traitor who who dissed Steph Curry so he could dish with Kyrie Irving with the Brooklyn Nets, right? I want you to think about Tom Brady, who spent 20 years and won seven rings for the Patriots, and when he left and he came back, what did they shout out? Traitor! Traitor! I want you to think about that because... That is what is happening in this passage. If you think we feel it in the arena of sports, it's about 1,000 times hotter in the arena of religion. And the people of God, for 2,000 years, had been subjected to the ills of polytheism. It had been branded into their souls. And through slavery and exile and persecution and shame upon shame and through vile foreigners doing unspeakable things to their heroes and through the awareness of of foul practices that were taking place in these pagan temples and through the songs of lamentation that they sung about the defeat at the hands of these foreigners, through all of this and more, what do they see? They see Paul changing teams, switching jerseys, uniting with the enemy. And so this is the backdrop of why Paul in this passage that Rich read is defending himself and how the crowd responded to him. And in Paul's defense, and I do want to back up to the beginning of this chapter to verse 1, and if you want to follow along, it's on page 958 in your pew Bible. But in Paul's defense, he constructs these seven planks as he builds his case. He starts in verse 1, brothers and fathers, listen now to my defense. And when uh, they heard him speak to them in Aramaic, they became quiet. So he's off to a a good start. This is their down-home dialect. Uh, He's one of us, they may be thinking. But then Paul said, I am a Jew, born in Tarsus of Cilicia, 
but brought up in this city. I, I studied under Gamaliel, and I was thoroughly trained in the law of our ancestors. I was just as zealous for God as any of you are today. I persecuted the followers of this way to their death arresting both men and women and throwing them into prison as the high priest and all the council can themselves testify. I even obtained letters from them to their associates in Damascus and went there to bring these people as prisoners to Jerusalem to be punished. Seven planks Paul is constructing in his defense. He's born a Jew. That's the first one. He's raised in Jerusalem. He studied under the great Gamaliel. He's an expert in the law of his ancestors. He's as zealous for God as the people of God are. In fact, he, he persecuted those who had wandered away to follow Jesus. And seventh, he even chased their friends and their partners all the way to Damascus. And then Paul goes on to say he's, he's knocked off of his horse. He's, he's met by this vision of the resurrected Jesus. And then what does he do? He puts four or five more planks in his defense. If you pick it up where we did in verse 12, he was blinded and led to Ananias, who, by the way, he says, was a devout observer of the law and respected by all Jews alike. That's another plank. Verse 14 the God of our ancestors, that's another plank, caused me to see the righteous man, the Sadiq, which uh, in the Hebrew mind was what everyone was aspiring to. It's, it's another plank. His name is Jesus. And so what did I do in verse 17? I returned to Jerusalem, the holy city, and I prayed at the temple, God's holy place. Plank after plank after plank of defense, 12 of them, and what do they serve to do? box Paul in. As he gets to the end of the speech and we see what happened to him, he offers this prayer of intervention and he hears God say to him, quick, leave, get out of there. And what does Paul say in effect in this prayer? Hey, I I'm good. I, I know I went from synagogue to synagogue and house to house tearing your followers limb for limb. So we're cool. The people of God, these uh, Hebrews, they get me. When Stephen was martyred, I was right there cheering him on. This would be kind of like Tom Brady saying, they'll remember that pass in the Super Bowl. And Kevin Durant saying, they'll remember that dunk in the finals. But then verse 21, God sent me to the Gentiles. God sent me to the bucks. God sent me to the nets. So how do they respond? Get rid of him. He's not even fit to live. He's not one of us. He's one of them. Jonathan Haidt is, I think, an incredibly important, important voice in our cultural moment. He's a psychologist. He's written several books that I've enjoyed reading. And he speaks of tribal identity. And he talks about how our ancestors, these clans that were less adept at cooperating with one another, were conquered by those who are more collaborative and more unified. And what this did is it developed in us this tribal kinship that we uh, prefer to be a part of, this us versus them. And what it also did is it also trained us to defend not so much the truth is our reputation. And Paul's actually, I think, doing a little bit of that here. 
And there's a story in Scripture that expounds this even further. Some of you would know it. It's the story of Cain and Abel. And what happens? Cain's heart burns with anger because he's desperately seeking to defend his reputation before God. And so what does he do? He ends up murdering his brother. For Cain, it became me versus him. Us versus them. But what about for you and for me. Um, I'm a big trail runner, as some of you know, and uh, virtually every trail out here has those yield signs. There's, there's horses and bikes and runners and hikers, and we have like various states of yielding to one another. And I've found myself in any one of those three capacities over the years on the trails, and whatever I'm doing becomes my end group. If I'm running, it's those bikers. If I'm biking, it's those runners. See how quickly we do this in our life? Maybe it's just me, not sure. But this word tribal can kind of sound far off, so let me use another word Jonathan Haidt uh, refers to. He talks about it as the partisan mind. So what's the worst number of political parties any country can have? One. That's Russia. What's the second worst number of political parties any country can have? Two. That's us. See, what happens is these parties, these tribes, each one is equally convinced that they possess the higher ground. So they operate through coercion so often. And then social media becomes the outrage machine and exacerbates this. It's designed to appeal to the worst version of who you are. It keeps the animosity alive. It throws more gas on the fire. So what am I saying this morning? We need intervention. So let's go back and look at Paul. See, Paul actually, and you may have missed this the first time you read the passage, is reaping what he was sowing. He violently opposed the Christians, and now his own people are violently opposing him. Paul used tactics of hate. And what happened? Tactics of hate were used against him. Let's rid the earth of him. He's not even fit to live. Paul needs intervention. He needs someone to to step in and take him out of this cycle of violence. So this intervention was for Paul's protection, and it would also be for the sake of Paul's mission. Paul, as some of you know, becomes an apostle to the Gentiles, and that's why I wanted you to keep those two pictures in mind. There is this intervention, and there is this job interview. Paul needs the intervention of God within his own life, and he needs the intervention of God in the circumstances surrounding him. So we've been geeking out on this Bible narrative for the past few minutes. It's been engaging maybe for many of you, for some of you, for a few of you, for two of you. Thank you, I see that hand. I want to bring it to conclusion by exploring how this prayer of intervention actually finds its way into Paul's life and might find its way into your life. Now, this might involve 20 different things or many ways to pray a prayer of intervention. I'm going to just focus on four as we conclude, and they're on the screen with, with behind me. Um, firstly, a, a prayer of intervention involves allowing God to break in. Secondly, allowing God to break through. Thirdly, getting over yourself. 
And fourthly, getting outside of yourself. I want to look at each one and then I want to lead us in a prayer of intervention as we come to the table. So firstly, a prayer of intervention involves allowing God to break in, which is to suggest you're going to have to allow God to break into your life in an incredibly unexpected way. It's almost always unexpected with God because there are a couple ways to break cycles of hate and violence that are forged by partisan minds, if you will. Politically speaking, I think we should require open primaries for all elections. It would deliver every candidate out of their echo chamber and into sane discourse. Amen? Practically speaking, we need to be vigilant and counterformational in how we use social media and, and fight against the algorithms that are curating and biasing us by our own opinions. But biblically speaking... Theologically speaking, I think ultimately it takes heart change. It takes life change. It takes strapping yourself to a God who gave up his very life for you. It means submitting to a God who donated everything of who he is for your sake and for my sake. See, Paul's intervention first came when he recognized that God and Jesus died for him. Martin Luther King Jr. would say, the, the ground at the foot of the cross is level ground. There isn't us, them. There is every one of us in need of a Savior. And Paul has this resurrected Christ living within him. That's why Paul would suggest that the only way Hebrews can embrace Gentiles and Romans can embrace Jews and in our day, rich and poor and black and white and young and old and God forbid, Republican and Democrat, the only way we can ultimately embrace one another in love is to allow God's self-giving, self-donating, sacrificial love through Christ to embrace us. So I would contend you have to allow God to break into your life in that way. Secondly, you have to allow God to break through. You're going to have to allow God to break through the cycles of evil in your own life. And for you, that might be different than it is for the person sitting next to you. We have uh, relational scripts. We have emotional patterns. We have addictions. We have aggressions. God delivers Paul from the violence of that day, but you have to catch this. Paul would have to allow God to keep breaking through his own tendencies of violence. And if you could chart Paul's letter writing, Paul wrote all these letters to the churches in the New Testament, and there's this beautiful um, evolution for Paul. He, he starts his earliest letters by defending himself. I'm an apostle. And by the time he gets to the writing to Ephesus, he's saying, I'm the least of all the apostles. And by the time he gets to Corinth and to his letter to Timothy, he's saying, no, no, actually, I'm the chief of all sinners. Why? Because he's leading a life where he's allowing God to break through some of his own cycles of aggression and addiction. So then thirdly, and this is where we turn a little bit towards 
the job interview, away from the intervention and to this daunting and exhilarating call of God in each of our lives, we have to find a way to get over ourselves. See, Paul wrote that he was called out of darkness and into this marvelous light. That was his Damascus Road experience. But not everyone who saw it felt it that way. It was actually baffling to them. It took Ananias and his household and Paul three years in Arabia to begin to make sense of this call. Paul was ridiculed. Paul was misunderstood. Paul was left out. Paul was passed over. Does this sound familiar to you? Does this ring true of anyone else? If you make this sort of commitment to follow God, could anyone else possibly relate to this? Well, in John's gospel, he wrote, Jesus was the light for everyone. But though the light shines in the darkness, the darkness did not understand it. Jesus came to that which was his own, but his own didn't even receive him. John writes, On trial, Pilate says, I've examined him in your presence and I've found no basis for your charges against him. But the crowd kept shouting, Crucify him. This is the good company that you keep when you, by the call of God, have to in many ways get over yourself to get deeper into God. And then fourthly and finally, you have to get outside of yourself too. What do I mean by that? Well, in verse 17, it says, Paul fell into a trance, which is another reason why I didn't want to preach this passage because that seems incredibly weird. <laughs> but let me just say that the Greek word here is ecstasis, where we get the word ecstasy, and it means quite literally to stand outside of oneself. Ex, out of, stasis, stand, to stand outside of oneself. Peter experienced this with the vision we talked about a few weeks ago. It's a very unusual moment. Again, it's an intervention. But I would say it this way for you, our emotions, as super important as they are to us, they are integral to who we are, and, and sometimes I think Christians d diminish, d diminish them or flatline them, but our emotions, as important as they are, are not always the arbiter of the truth. And so three or four times in my life, God's call transcended my emotions, what I felt about God's call. I'll give you one example as we close. I'll be very vulnerable with you. Taking this job two years ago. Um, I planted a church. I, I grew it over 16 years. In some ways, when you plant a church, it becomes your baby, your daughter. As I was contending with this call, it almost felt like, oh no, I'm not sure. I might be more sad than glad. But the safest place is the center of God's will. That's not a, a needlepoint on a pillow. That's actually what Corey Ten Boom said as she was rescuing Jews from Nazi Germany. Because happiness and sadness may come and go. But to experience joy is to be faithful, to be in the middle of God's will. So I want to conclude by just praying these things into you, into me. It's a prayer of intervention I wrote. Um, I have um, copies of it. Should you want to take one home, you can come see me after the service. But I just would invite you into this prayer alongside of me as we come to this table. And you can find the words on the screen if you'd like to follow along. God, 
I know you love me. How much? You gave yourself over to all of the world's brokenness. You took on all of my brokenness, my pain, my failure. I've turned from you in so many ways, but you never left me. You even pursued me. And after giving yourself on the cross, you rose to bring promise of new life. Allow me to allow your resurrection power to break in. God, I need you to break through these cycles of evil. God, I am, and you can fill in the blank here, angry, addicted, embittered, anxious, afraid. Allow me by your Spirit's power to break these shackles. Grant me the courage to get the help I need, whatever it may be, accountability, therapy, medication, friendship, guidance. God, my journey will involve getting over myself. I must care less what people think. I might be misunderstood. I might even be left out or passed over by those I thought cared about me. Would you be my source of belonging? Might I know that my fellowship is with you, Jesus, for you were betrayed, abandoned, and deeply misunderstood. God, finally, I need to get outside myself. There might be competing emotions, desires, or assumptions that don't fully align with what you're calling me to do. Make your call clear to me. Give me the proper perspective and wisdom I need to pursue this call upon my life. In the name of the Father, Son, and Spirit, I pray. Amen.